Well, good morning, guys. Good to see you, everyone. And I'm excited, as always, to be able to start a Christmas series. And I love uh, Christmas time, love singing Christmas carols. Don't you guys just enjoy being able to, to, to this time of year and, uh, and just being able to, to focus on Jesus and his birth? And um, it's, it's been a, it's, I don't know, I, I always look forward to, to Christmas. So, uh, we are starting kind of a three-week series. I'll mention just so you guys know uh, that on Christmas Day, which is Sunday, we are having service in person, but we are moving back to only one service, so 11 a.m. only. Uh, so it'll, it will be packed, I'm sure, but it's going to be a great service. All the kids are going to be upstairs. We're going to have uh, the kids are doing a special song. They uh, will have a, a special kids lesson. We'll have a short message. We'll sing Christmas carols. It's going to be a blast. So that's Christmas Day. Um, Christmas Eve, we'll have a, our, uh, we'll have a uh, communion service kind of any time uh, between, I think, 6 and 7.30 or so. So we'll share a little more about that next week. Uh, but that's Christmas Day. New Year's Day, we're doing the same thing, 11 a.m. only, one service. So just kind of giving you a heads up a little bit for our holiday schedule. Uh, I know a lot of people travel, a lot of people have things going on, uh, but we'll be online as always. Uh, at 11 a.m. both those days too, so uh, we hope you can join us for that. Uh, today, though, we get to jump in and start a series about the king um, and about gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so when we start thinking about Christmas and start thinking about Christmas carols, I'll just kind of caution you that there's a lot I love about Christmas carols, but you can't really base your theology on Christmas carols. Have you ever noticed that not everything you sing at Christmas is true? For instance, Silent Night. Have you all ever seen a silent birth? Okay. Um, there's not much silent or all is peace, all is calm. Uh, that's, not, that's not the description of, of any birth that I've Noah, okay? Um, there's a lot of other songs that we would sing, like the baby not crying, like way in a manger. The baby doesn't cry when the cattle are making noise. Not, that this, babies are going to cry at everything, right? This is, you start thinking about that. Uh, we even sing the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are, right? That's another song we sing. The only issue is we don't know that there were three people. The scripture doesn't really say. In fact, I think there were a lot more. Um, not only that, they really weren't kings, and not only that, they really weren't from the Orient. So we have some problems there, right? Sometimes when it comes to Christmas carols, um, and they're good songs, um, I would even say like Joy to the World to me is not a Christmas song. It's a song about Jesus coming back. So there's all this stuff around Christmas that we've got to be careful because sometimes we embellish the story based more on our nativity sets than what Scripture actually says. And so today, we're going to be unpacking the Christmas story from Scripture. And I would just kind of caution you to say that when we read Scripture, the main things are the plain things, right? The main things are the plain things that what Scripture says. That's what we've got to focus on. And so when it comes to the wise men, or as they are known, the magi, We'll talk about that a little bit in this series, and hopefully you'll have a little bit better understanding of them. Now, let me kind of give you their background. Now, they were wise, obviously by the name as it implies, 
Um, they, were, they weren't really astrologers or astronomers, although they, they were familiar with the stars. Now, they were a group of people who were searching for truth. And so uh, they were trying to figure things out. And uh, they were not kings, but they were advisors to the kings. And, um, uh, you know, as we get into this story, you're going to learn a little bit more about them. Now, where are they from? Where are the wise men from? Um, what we know in Scripture, they're from the east. And we'll be in Matthew chapter 2 today. If you've got your Bibles, you can kind of go there. We'll be there in a few minutes. But um, where are they from? Now, we really don't know. Now, some people, there's all sorts of uh, theories about this. Now, where are they from? Now, uh, if you study church, uh, some church tradition will teach one was from Ethiopia, one was from India, uh, one was from Asia, and they got all these different stories. Um, there's a book out that says, hey, they were from modern-day Jordan. Uh, there's all these different theories. But what I believe, and what makes a lot of sense to me, is that they were from the area of Persia or Babylon, which modern-day Iran, Iraq. So why do I think that? Well, I think a couple of reasons, and I want to share them with you. But one uh, that really makes a lot of sense to me is something happened in Persia about 600 years before Jesus was born. And if you know the story in the Old Testament, um, the Israelites were taken captive and taken to Babylon. You remember this story? And there were four guys that the scripture tells us specifically about. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember the, the story, kid story? And so, actually, if you look back, there's some hints here that I think tell us how the wise men knew that something was going to happen. Okay, And in Daniel 1, um, we read that God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel this special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. And when the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff, they brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with them, and no one impressed them as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. And so Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. So Daniel, they were taken out of Israel, and they took the, the smartest people, right? They took the leaders out of Israel, took them to Babylon, and Daniel flourished there. God blessed him. God was using him to be an advisor to the king. And as he stayed there longer and longer, you see that he gained more and more responsibility. And actually, when you get to Daniel chapter 5, we read this. It says, There's a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Uh, your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. And so what's interesting here, as, as we'll read in a minute, uh, when, when the wise men show up in Israel, the first question they ask is, where is the king of the Jews? How did they even know who the Jewish people were? How did they know they were waiting for a king, for a messiah? Well, 
It's because Daniel, 600 years before, had kind of primed the pump. He had taught them. He was the chief over the wise men in this whole empire. And so they had heard the stories. They had heard uh, the, the prophecies from the Old Testament. And they were waiting and looking and, and wondering when this king was going to be born. So that's one reason that I think that they were from Persia. Okay, the wise men. Another reason is one that I learned when we were in Israel earlier this year at the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. Now, the Church of the Nativity is a fascinating building, uh, a fascinating church. It's really what I would say is the oldest church in the world that's still in use today. Uh, It was originally built on the site where they thought Jesus was born um, in the year 326 A.D., okay? Uh, by Helena, Constantine's mother. And, and so they found this site. They went and said, where was Jesus born? And they said he was born here in this cave. Now, it's interesting. We kind of think, when we think, where was Jesus born? Our response is a stable, right? But in that time period, in that caves are all over Bethlehem. You'll see caves there. You'll see it at the shepherd's field. You'll see caves all over the place there. And so they said Jesus, where they kept the animals, was in the caves. So they, they built a church around that in the year 326. Uh, then in the year 530, they expanded the church and kind of rebuilt it, tore it down, rebuilt it. And just, just Justinian, uh, the Roman uh, uh, governor, kind of built a new church there. Um, and so in year 530. But why? This is where I'm getting to. I know it's a lot of history. But in the year 604, 614, uh, the Persians came through Israel and literally destroyed everything, destroyed all references to, to Christianity. And so they destroyed all the churches. But when they got to Bethlehem, they wouldn't destroy that church. And the reason why is there's, there was a mural in that church um, that showed the wise men, and they were wearing Persian robes. And so when they got there and said, they are honoring our people, they wouldn't tear it down. And so they left it. So that church that you go into today, the the church of the nativity, has been in operation, right? It's the same building that was built in 530. Now, when you go somewhere in the U.S. and it's 100 years old, you think it's an old house, right? Or an old building. Now, think about if you go into something that's 1,500 years old. That's crazy, right? To think about how old that church has been in operation. Now, that's a weird church. I ain't going to lie. I mean, there's some weird stuff in there. Uh, it's like Christmas ornament type things hanging everywhere. And you, you have to look up pictures of it sometime. Um, but, I mean, and it's been restored and renovated. But you can actually go in and see parts of the floor from the original church from 325, the mosaics that are still there. So, um, but it's interesting to me that from that early time, they said all oh, the wise men were Persians, right? And so those two things kind of combine, kind of lead me to the fact that it really seems like it makes a lot of sense for the wise men to be from Persia. So with that background, that's a little bit about the wise men. That's a little bit about where they're from. Let's jump into the story and let's learn some more today. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 6. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. 
King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? So they responded, in Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you and will be my shepherd from the people for my people Israel. And so the, shep- the, the wise men um, came, and you see in our nativity sets, we always have this picture, right? You have the angels, you have Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus, you have the shepherds there, you have the wise men there, you have all the animals surrounding, you have this nice little scene that everybody shows up on, on the night of Jesus' birth. And so what we're going to learn here and what we're going to see is that may not be the case. That there was some time that had passed here when the wise men actually showed up. They saw this star. They had to travel a great distance. And so when they got there, um, they went looking for Jesus. And they, the first place they show up is with King Herod, probably in Jerusalem. Um, and so um, what we see here, right... Um, King Herod, he, he heard about this. He was deeply disturbed. We'll, we'll kind of unpack that in a minute and why that's so. And, and that he got all the religious leaders together and they said, okay, well, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Why is that? Uh, there's a small prophecy in the book of Micah in the Old Testament. It's in Micah 5.2. Uh, and it just simply says this, but you, O Bethlehem, I'm not going to read that second name because I don't know how to say it. Are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come for you on my behalf. So this prophecy that's kind of tucked away in the Old Testament says Bethlehem is going to be this place where the ruler of Israel is born. And so the wise men show up. Um, the King Herod gets the religious leaders, they point them towards Bethlehem. And that brings us to chap, uh, chapter 2, verse 7 in Matthew. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Now we know enough about Herod to know that this is just a flat out lie that he's threatened, he's deeply disturbed, he's insecure, and so he's just trying to find this baby, um, and not for good reasons, right? And after this interview, the wise men went their way. The star that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Then they entered the house, that's significance, and saw the child, not the baby, the child, with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Um, And so that kind of brings me um, to my first point this morning as we kind of unpack the stories we learn. And it's simply this, the wise men, they were waiting and watching. If you're not careful, you kind of read over this and you kind of skip past this and you don't realize that the wise men had been waiting and watching. Now, uh, do we have anybody that, just be honest with you, do you have anybody here that's impatient? Anybody? Just care to admit? I'm impatient. Um, I've got to admit, 
Like when I'm in line, Jennifer fusses at me a lot. And she's like, why are you, don't worry, it's, we're, it's fine, we're not in a hurry. And I'm like, now when I go in a, and, and I'm checking out somewhere, here's, here's do any of y'all do this? I'm like scanning the lines. I'm counting how many people. I'm looking at the buggies to see how much stuff. And I'm watching the cashier to see how fast they're going. <laughs> because some of them are like, moving in slow motion and some of them are like you know are like getting it done and I'm like and it doesn't matter I'm like methodical in choosing but it doesn't matter whatever line I choose I guarantee you it's going to be the slowest line <laughs> even after my analysis because it never fails that I get in line and someone's like oh this doesn't you know somebody in front of me is like oh this doesn't have a price tag on it we need a price check or we need to or this is broken, we need to go get this, or you got exchange, or you got coupons. And, you know, once you start pulling out them coupons, I'm just like, oh, you know, you're going to be here a while. And so it doesn't, and I'm like sitting there like, i got to get done, i got to get through. I mean, that's my personality. I'm like in a hurry, and i got, and I have trouble waiting. Now, the wise men, if they truly were from Persia, how long had they been waiting? 600 years. 600 years they had been waiting and looking for a Messiah to come to the Jewish people. Now, honestly, it's not the same people for 600 years, right? You know that. So that meant they waited their entire lifetime. They passed it down to their children to be looking and watching. They waited. That passed it down to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next. For 600 years, they were waiting for a sign that the Messiah had come. And they finally saw a star. Everything lined up. And, and I'm not going to get into what the star was. There's a whole lot of people that have all sorts of theories about that. But they saw something so significant that it made them leave their home, travel that great distance, and show up. To the king, Herod. Now, how many were there? Um, we don't know. Now, according, if you, you, know, you look at your little nativity sets, there were three wise men. Why? Because they brought three gifts, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But let me just ask you this. If three guys on a camel showed up, would they really get King Herod's attention? Would they really get to walk up to the king of this whole huge territory and say, what's up, king? Let's kind of, let's chat. No, but if they showed up with a whole entourage of people, I think it would get his attention. So I honestly think, and in, in bringing these gifts with them, I think it was a bunch of people. I, I think there was a crowd that had come with them. I don't think it was just, it just says the wise men. It doesn't say how many. So we got to be careful sometimes just in what we assume. And so there are some things we know and some things we don't know. Uh, another thing, we don't really know their names. Now, on your nativity sets, a lot of times they've been given names throughout church history. You have uh, Balthazar and Gaspar and Melchior and all these names. And, and they'll say, you know, they were Ethiopian or Indian or Greek. And um, it's, it's, some people wrote that Thomas baptized them later and... Uh, there's all sorts of crazy theories and things out there, but what we know for sure is what's in the Word. And what we do know is they were from the East. What we do know, they were waiting and they were watching and they were looking for a sign. And so another thing we know is that they were, these people, they were, they had, they were high-level officials. They were advisors to the king. They were, they were, these were prominent people. We know that because of the gifts that they brought. 
And when they show up, they run into Herod. Now, Herod was a problem. Um, I'll, I'll give you some background. Uh, today, I'm kind of giving you a lot of the historical stuff in the background. We'll get into a little more next week. Um, but I think you need to know this stuff to kind of understand the story a little bit. Herod was a, an issue because we're talking about Herod the Great. Uh, when you read the word Herod in the Bible, there are multiple Herods, just so you know. So you kind of have to know which one you're reading about. This was the, the first one, Herod the Great. Um, he was put in charge of Judea and all of Galilee, this whole area, uh, about 40 B.C. And he was, his title was the King of the Jews. And so he was half Jewish and half Adamian. Um, and so he, um, he, he, kinda, he wasn't truly against the Jewish people. Uh, he he, he kind of did like a lot of rulers do today. He would do just enough to keep them happy, to keep them on his side. But in honesty, in all honesty, he really worked for the Romans. And so uh, he was kind of this guy. He's really kind of a complex individual. Incredible builder. We'll talk about some of that in a minute. But he was also, um, he was also kind of a, a bloodthirsty tyrant, too. And when you look at what he's known for today... Um, he, some of the stuff he built was just, I mean, 2,000 years ago. It blows your mind today. He, he built palaces all over, uh, all over Israel. And so he had palaces, um, that he had fortresses and palaces. He had Masada, uh, which is built on a thousand foot tall cliff overlooking the Dead Sea. You look at it today and you're like, I don't, know how, I don't know how you would build it today with the technology we had. He built this massive fortress with a swimming pool overlooking the Dead Sea. Okay, uh, You look, he built the Herodium, which was another fortress he had, uh, not far from Jerusalem. Um, and when he got there to build it, um, he couldn't see Jerusalem from the top of the, the peak where they were going to build it. So he commanded his men to move the mountain that was next to it over here and move an entire mountain to build it up higher so that they could build the palace higher so that they could see Jerusalem. And so you can still see the ruins of the Herodium. That's actually where Herod was buried there. Now, uh, he built, uh, of course, a palace in Jerusalem. He built uh, Caesarea Maritima, which was a city on the Mediterranean Sea, and a huge Roman city that had aqueducts that ran all the way from Mount Carmel all the way over to that city. The aqueducts are still standing today 2,000 years later. I mean, it's, it's just, it's mind-blowing to see stuff that's that old, that was built so well, right, that it's still there today. He built, uh, uh, the, he rebuilt Solomon's temple, right, and, built, and expanded it and built this whole temple mount area and built the walls around it. And if you were here when we talked about our trip, I talked about the, some of those walls, like the western wall, one of the base stones under the western wall. It's 45 feet long, 11 feet tall, 6 feet wide, a single stone. The largest stone that's ever been used in construction. Bigger than anything even used at the pyramids. The estimated weighs between 400 and 600 tons. They moved that stone and it still sits there today as the base of the Western Wall. I don't want to, I mean, you look at this stuff, it just, he is amazing at the complexity of what he built. The water systems, the aqueducts, the buildings and this stuff. He, he had swimming pools with running water at every place, he, every palace he had. Now, again, 2,000 years ago. 
And so he is known as one of the great builders of all time. At Caesarea Maritima, he um, used hydraulic cement to, uh, to, to actually build the base underwater, cement that set up underwater so they could build the palace over, extending out over the Mediterranean Sea. Crazy stuff, right? But he's also this crazy, crazy guy that is very insecure. They said he was less than five feet tall. And that tells you a little bit. He had little man syndrome. Um, he was always worried that somebody was going to get him. Somebody was going to overthrow him. So much so that he had his own kids killed. Killed several of his own sons. He killed his own wife because he thought she was plotting against him. Right? Uh, all sorts of stories you can read in history about him. Um, it was said, it, there was a saying at that time, said it is better to be one of Herod's pigs than his own children. Because he was just so bloodthirsty. Um, so he was cruel. He was paranoid. He thought everybody was out to get him. So when these wise men show up and say, Hey, Herod, we heard there's a new king. It says in Matthew that he was deeply disturbed. <laughs> I think that's an understatement of Scripture, right? It's like he was panicking when he heard this news. The first thing he does, he gets all the, 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 religious, the Jewish religious leaders and says, Okay, tell me about this. What, are, what is he talking about? There's a, a king of the Jews, and what does the prophecy say? And that's when they tell him about Bethlehem. And he's like, we've got to find this child. We learn later that he even issues a decree that all children two years and under in Bethlehem would be killed. Why? Because... There was some time that had passed, and he was unsure about exactly when this child was born. And so he's just like, he's doing everything he can to get rid of Jesus because he's a threat to his rule. And so that kind of brings us to the point. The wise men, they were waiting, they were watching, they were simply looking for a king. And one of the things that I love about this, and I don't know that you've ever really thought about this, but some of the first people that show up to worship Jesus were Gentiles. I think, I think the, if you ask me why this story, and this story is only found in Matthew. It's the only place in Scripture that you find the story of the wise men in, in Matthew chapter 2. And you ask me why is this there? I think the sole reason, because it doesn't really, I mean, it kind of gives us uh, a, a kind of insight into Jesus. But the reason I think it's there is because it shows that Jesus came for everyone. Not just the Jewish people. Not just the religious elite. He came for everyone. And the first people that show up to, to bring him gifts and to worship and honor him. You have the shepherds who are nobody. Then you have the wise men right, that are Gentiles. And so Jesus came from everyone, and then they finally arrive at the house where Jesus was. And it says that Jesus is a child now, and it's amazing what they do. They give their gifts. They bring him gifts. And that brings me to my next point, the giving of treasure. The giving of treasure, it's an act of worship. It's an act of worship. I love this story because in verse 11 and 12 it says, They entered the house. They saw the child with the mother Mary. They bowed down. They worshiped him. They opened up their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Before they gave him their treasure, before they gave him their treasure, they opened up their hearts. 
And can I just tell you, this is important. We don't get close to God by giving. We open up our hearts first and our giving is a response. I think we get this backwards a lot of times. I think a lot of people think, hey, I'll give my way. I'll earn my way. I'll achieve my way to God. And so it doesn't work that way. You don't give your way. Uh, you don't give things away. You don't do good things so that you get close to God. You get close to God, and then He leads you to give. This is a hu- that, that's, that's important, right? It, it's, it's the order there is hugely important. And if we're not careful, we miss it because we think we can earn our way. We can give our way uh, to, to God's favor. That's not, how, that's not how it works. Here at Christmas time, we've got to be careful because it's so, much, it's so easy to get caught up into giving and receiving that we miss the point of why we do it to start with. We don't give and give and give, and so Jesus will look down, and God will look down and be happy with us. We worship first. We give our hearts to Him first. We make Him the focus. That is what Christmas is all about. It's about Jesus. And that's why we're doing this series. Is, that's why at Christmas time, we, 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 every year we want to teach Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Because it's when we focus on Him, then our hearts are open to give in response. Then our hearts are open to serve in response. It's not the other way around. We've got to be careful here. And so, I also think there's some spiritual significance to the gifts that they brought. The gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so, we're going to take time during this series to talk about that. Um, You know, Matthew 6 says, Wherever your treasure is, there the desire of your heart will also be. And so, I'm just going to just say this, right? We've got to be careful Uh, what we put our faith and our trust in. We've got to be careful what we worship. And if we worship Jesus, that's where our trust is going to be. And so it starts with Him. And so if we kind of unpack these gifts and what they mean, let's talk about gold this morning. Let's talk about the significance of gold because I think there is a significance there. Here's why gold is significant. It's significant because it's the symbol of royalty. Throughout the Bible... Uh, royalty is common people didn't have gold royalty had gold and so this was a symbolic statement of jesus's kingship when as soon as they show up they say where is the newborn king of the jews can i just say that statement in and of itself is so crazy because kings are not born you ever thought kings are not born princes are born and you, 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 you kind of wait your turn until you become the king. Because there's already a king. But they said, where is the newborn king of the Jews? This is something supernatural. And they're coming to give gold to a baby. It doesn't make sense until you realize that they knew the prophecies. They knew what, they knew they had something, they had some understanding of what was about to happen. And so the gifts they brought, um, really, and, and I, some people have different opinions about this, and some people think they're just diplomatic gifts. I don't believe that. I think you see types and shadows and things throughout the Bible. You see things that have meaning later, and I think the gold, frankincense, and myrrh uh, are very much that. Gold was a symbol of a king. So it, it showed that he was royalty. 
the frankincense was what, um, it's what was used in worship in the temple. It showed Jesus as a priest. The, the myrrh was, uh, you'll see it used as a burial spice. You'll he, you see it different things. Uh, but it showed the humanity of Jesus. That he was the prophet that has come in human flesh here on earth. And so it, it's the prophet, the priest, the king. It, it shows Jesus' humanity in his d- divinity. And so what we see here is all of this kind of coming together. And gold, though, was the present for a king. Now, throughout Scripture, you see how this is used. Gold is mentioned time and time again throughout Scripture. Over 400 times, it's a sign of royalty, a sign of wealth. Uh, It's extremely rare. Now, King Solomon had his ivory throne overlaid with gold. Uh, The furniture inside of the tabernacle uh, was... Uh, was had gold uh, pointing uh, to the deity of God, right, of God. The Ark of the Covenant was acacia wood covered in gold with the, the mercy seat in the cherubim made of pure gold on top of it. Gold was everywhere. Uh, in fact, I thought this was interesting. Uh, Solomon had accumulated so much gold when he was king that it is estimated now that in today's dollars, his wealth would be $60 trillion dollars. 60 trillion. And we hear numbers like billion, million, billion, trillion. We don't really have a concept for what they are sometimes, right? So I looked up what Elon Musk is worth. Okay, this is interesting. I also looked up Jeff Bezos, but his divorce kind of wiped out a lot of his wealth. And of course, Elon Musk and his whole Twitter thing now is kind of wiping out some of his wealth. But right now, they estimate Elon Musk is worth about $262 billion. Jeff Bezos is about... A little bit less, $165 billion. I don't know how he's living on that, but he's getting by. You take $262 billion, um, divide it by $60 trillion, you get this. Now this so Elon Musk has about less than one-half of 1% of the wealth that King Solomon had. That's pretty amazing, guys, to think about it. Less than one-half of 1%. Because we have no comprehension of how much money even like 200 billion is. 60 trillion. It's, it's mind-blowing, right, to even think about that. But this is, what, this is why I share that. Because the kings had the gold. The kings uh, owned, had control of all of that. So when you read about uh, kingdoms being conquered, the first thing they did is they stole the wealth. They took that, they ransacked and took that with them. And here you have wise men showing up with gold to give to a baby. That's why I think there's more than three too. Because if you had gold on you and there's just three guys on a camel, you're not going to keep that gold very long. You need an army protecting you with that, okay? Uh, But they show up and it just shows the kingship of Jesus. There's... uh, and, I, and I've heard it said, too, that maybe the, the family used that to finance their trip later to Egypt to escape Herod's wrath. Um, maybe that gold was used, had some, uh, some significance beyond just the kingship. Maybe it used to finance his early life and protect Jesus. But here's what we see is that throughout Jesus' life, people slowly started to realize he's the king. The wise men recognized it first off because they were waiting and watching. It took everybody else a while longer. When Jesus shows up um, in Jerusalem on that last week and they line the roads and shouting Hosanna, um, John chapter 12, 
It says, they took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. All right, that's in John chapter 12. Uh, you, you look, even later on that week, we read it in John chapter 18 and as our scripture reading this morning where Pilate even proclaims Jesus is the king. He says, uh, you, you, have an ask, uh, you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? He says uh, in the next chapter, it was, it was about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. Pilate said to the people, look, here is your king. He even put a sign on him, right, that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So, so people throughout the life of Jesus, they didn't always recognize him for who he really was. But they started towards the end of his life saying, this guy is the king. Now, they were looking for a military king. They were looking for a political king. They were looking for someone to come and and pull them out of the oppression they were under from the Roman government. But they didn't realize Jesus came in in a different way to set up the kingdom of God. He spoke 60 times of the kingdom of God during his earthly ministry. The kingdom that is here and now in the hearts of all who belong to Jesus. That That Jesus is the king that rules our hearts. That's the kingdom he was setting up. We sing that we three kings. He, in the second verse of that says, He's born a king on Bethlehem's plain. Gold I bring him to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. That's the gold significance. So here's my question to you this morning. Will you worship Jesus as the king of your life? That, that's really what this comes down to. When we look, they're honoring him as king. They're bringing him gold and saying, where is this king of the Jews? Is that how we are going to acknowledge him? You, you, you see in this story, you see different responses from people. You see Herod, who is paranoid, who is worried, who is deeply disturbed. And why was he like that? Because he was worried. He wanted to be in control of his own life. Right? He was all about preserving his power. I think a lot of people that way are like that. They're like, I want control. I want to be in control of my own life. I want to preserve my power in my life. I want to do what I want to do. No one can tell me any other way to live my life. That's like Herod. Then you had your religious leaders. And when Herod gathered them around, they wanted to know too, but they were concerned about preserving the status quo. They didn't want things to change. They had their rules, they had their regulations, they had their way of life, and and they were happy with that. They were looking in the wrong place for the Messiah. I, I think a lot of people in our world today are looking in the wrong places for salvation. They're looking to their stuff to save them. They're looking for their way of life to save them. They're looking, uh, they just want, they want to preserve the status quo. But then the wise men were different because they were seeking truth. They weren't just, they, they were waiting, they were watching, they were seeking, they were asking questions, they were looking and, and, and when they found him, what did they do? They worshiped him. Now, now, let me ask you, which one of those groups of people do you, do you relate to? Because I think in our world today, we have a lot of people who are against Jesus because they're not open to the truth. They're not really looking for the truth. They're not really looking for a Savior. 
They want to preserve their way of life. They want to do things their way. They want control. And you can't have control and obedience. They, they, they don't go together. And so, you know, it says in 1 Timothy 6, 15, it says, For at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only Almighty God, the King of all kings and the Lord of lords. And the reality is, there's going to come a day where every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. Jesus is coming back. And at that day, the whole world's going to see him for who he is. Our job in the meantime is to tell as many people as we can about who Jesus really is. That's our mission. That's our job is to share the love and message and hope of the gospel with as many people as we can to tell them about Jesus. I read this this week and I, I want to share this with you. One, a pastor said this. He said, as I think about the wise men, I see that nothing got in their way to divert their attention away from the mission to worship the king. The distance they traveled, the unknown location, the troubled people in Jerusalem, none of that, were, that wasn't obstacles that they couldn't, that would distract the wise men away from what they were intent on doing. Instead, as the star appeared, they were exceedingly joyful, and when they found the king, they fell down to worship and gave him their treasure. This Christmas season, may we always consider the worth of the one whom we worship. Jesus Christ, the King. Let us not allow the dinner disasters, the arguments, the mishaps to get in the way of worship. May we focus our attention on the sacrifice of this King in order to make a way for sinful man to have a relationship with a holy God. May we bring something to worship the King today, which is to live a life of obedience for His glory. So as you set out your manger scene this Christmas and place the wise men in it, May you be reminded of their desire to worship the king. And may you be reminded that Christmas is about our personal worship of the king. Christmas is about worship. It's about making Jesus the king of your life. It's about laying down all the stuff that has control on us. And I'm this is what it's so tough because our world has flipped it around to say you're only happy when you get stuff and you're only happen happy when you give stuff. And it, it, all that flows out of who we are in Christ and acknowledging Him as the king of our life. And so I just want to challenge you a little bit this morning. Now, when Jesus comes back, Revelation tells us that on his robe at his side was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. The world's going to know who he is. But right now, it's our mission to share that with them. And so can, can I just ask you this morning, do you know Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Let's pray today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Christmas story. We're so thankful that we can learn more about Jesus being the king of our lives. And so whatever it is that's keeping us from worshiping, whatever it is that's holding us back, Lord, may we lay it down, give it up, and just come to Jesus. And what Jesus wants more than anything is our obedience. He wants our love, our obedience. He wants our worship. And so as we worship today, let's acknowledge who Jesus is. The Lord of our life. The Bible says if we confess that Jesus is Lord. We believe that God has raised him from the dead. Then we will be saved. 
And it's all about surrender. It's all about submission. It's all about laying down our control and acknowledging Jesus for who he really is. The God who has come to earth to save us. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. And I pray for each person listening today, both here, both online, that they would be able to say Jesus is the Lord. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's, he's the ruler of my life. And I pray that each and every person would just make sure before they leave to, to acknowledge you as the Lord of their life. It's in the name of Jesus we pray this morning. Amen.